The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. and Happy New Year to everybody, and... Let's see if 2021 uh, can't be a little better than 2020, Ryan. And I do have a Ryan Repco, certified financial planner professional who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management here live today. Good Welcome. morning. And on the phone, I'm going to go to Fred here. Fred, I'm going to press it once, press it twice. Fred, are you there? I can hear you fine. Oh, good. I have Dr. Fred Gertz on the line uh, today calling in for the show. Thanks, Dr. Fred. You can call in with your questions. Too good to be here. Yeah. Call in with your questions to 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, Fred, may we live in interesting times, as they say. Right. I think that's an old Chinese Yeah, the uh, strange thing is that the uh, one uh, kind of pillar of stability seems to be the markets as opposed to the rest of the world. We've had uh, the Trump election, the, the virus resurgence, the uh, Georgia Senate uh, changing the uh, uh, Georgia uh, election, changing the uh, the Senate, and more recently the riots, and still the, uh, the uh, market seemed to hold in there pretty steadily, and actually uh, climbing up a little bit, so it's kind of a a different world, uh, both both in terms of what's happening and the effect on the markets. Yeah, we learned there's a, I think 2020 provided us with a master class in useful lessons for investors. We're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, I wrote about that in my newsletter I'm about to release to clients uh, this week. But one thing I thought was interesting, if, if I look sort of since the election and more and really, uh, for the last few weeks now, I guess that is pretty much that. Uh, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note, and, oh, it wasn't probably a month or two ago. It was probably around 0. 0.75, 0.85%, less than 1%. And now it closed fr uh, Monday's trading session at about 1.13. Um, is that just increased investor expectations from all the stimulus, do you think, Fred? I think so. I think the expectation very likely is that the inflation rate won't be as low as people thought a, a few weeks ago, but uh, still it's extremely low. So again, I think that's probably a welcome change as opposed to an unwelcome one. I think it again, is too. Like you said, uh, you said about the the markets, uh, this is a for me a good time not to be a market time. I would have been wrong three or four times in a row. Uh, the Trump election uh, stimulated the market up. I, I was surprised by that. The resurgence of the virus didn't seem to have much effect. The change in the uh, in the uh, Senate composition, I thought it was going to be a big thing, and actually it resulted in the market going up rather than down, and, and the uh, riots had some effect, but virtually uh, nil in terms of the, the overall picture. So it's been a, a very strange kind of world. It has, and I think it's confounded a lot of people and, uh, and left a lot of people scratching their heads. But again, I think there's some important lessons in there. But I guess that's I guess what I can read from all this, with all the changes in, in the Senate control, et cetera, we might expect more stimulus, um, 
And I suppose if if you can anticipate increased government spending without corresponding tax increases, at least for now, I guess that means more borrowing by the Treasury, and that probably puts pressure on interest rates. So it all kind of begins to make sense. And I did notice that you I think also go ahead. There's, a, there's a kind of feeling that the uh, economy is, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, fairly sound after all the all the turbulence on top. So this is kind of a story that emerges fairly often when uh, uh, George H.W. Bush uh, left after uh, being defeated by by uh, Clinton. Uh, the argument was, well, the, the economy is all set to take off and, and grow really rapidly, and actually did. Uh, when Obama left, he was uh, I, I got kind of uh, unhappy in a sense. He thought that he got the economy in a very good situation that Trump was going to benefit by it. And this time, the, the Trump people are saying, well, the economy is basically uh, in, in a kind of underlying way sound, and uh, Biden is going to benefit by that. So I, I guess we hope that happens, but who knows? One of the things I noticed was, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the U.S. personal savings rate still remains high. In November, it remained above the pre-pandemic levels of 12.9%. I mean, these are high personal savings numbers. Um, there is an immense trillions of dollars of cash sitting on the sidelines. Makes me wonder if we can't get sort of a melt-up uh, either in the economy right. and, and maybe even the stock market. You know, when you go back to after 2008, 2009, Sort of similar, a lot of a lot of personal savings, people delevered. Uh, I think there was a lot of pent-up consumption. I think after even the 2000, 2003 recession and bear market, it was, it was kind of similar. And we, we sort of went into many economic booms for a while, or at least strong, strong uh, growth in the economy. I wonder if that's heading for us, and I, I wonder if that's what the stock market is sniffing out. I think it's sparsely. <clears throat> There's also another uh, factor here that I think was not true in uh, 2007 to 2009, and that is that the high savings rate is not just people pulling their money out of uh, out of uh, investments, but it's the fact that uh, it's, it's not as easy for people to spend on services now as in the past, and higher income people do spend a lot on services. So it's kind of a strange story that. For years and years, uh, a lot of people have complained about the trickle-down economy, how uh, the trickle-down economy is where uh, rich people do well, and then their, their spending then helps the rest of the economy. Well, the, the trickle has actually dried up a little bit in the last uh, nine months or so because high-income people are not spending as much for uh, uh, various kinds of services, including uh, uh, eating out, travel, things of that sort. And the impact is it's had a very negative uh, effect on uh, lower-paid employees who worked in the service industry. So uh, people didn't like the trickle-down economy when it was trickling, and they, I guess, like it even less when it's not trickling now. And when you look at one of the things I, maybe once or twice a year, I look at see if uh, the consumer's personal debt, household personal debt as a percentage of their disposable income. I mean, the charts don't go back far enough for it to be as low as it is today. In other words... It really seems like the households, at the household level, our, our leverage is about as low as it's been in four or five decades. Um, I think that portends well. Uh, but it's, it, you know what's weird, Fred? There are so many, it's like two things can be true at once. It, it seems like if you look at household net worth and savings rates and, and, and the, the balance sheet of the average U.S. household, 
things really tell a pretty good story, but yet we know there are an awful lot of people where it's just the opposite, where they've really been left behind and really hurting. But on paper, it looks like things are pretty decent. Right. I, I think in one sense, the uh, huge stimulus has uh, uh, kind of buffered that to a certain extent, but people are still uh, very likely fearful about the future because uh, no one expects the stimulus to go on forever. And at some point, uh, things have to happen in the economy. Jobs have to start uh, being re, uh, redeveloped and so on. So I think that's the kind of underlying fear. But, but again, also, the stimulus is, again, a kind of double-edged sword that uh, it, it happened very quickly, and I think it did uh, provide a great deal of stability, but also a lot of people criticized it for being kind of a, a scattergun approach, and that's certainly true, but if you're going to do it quickly, you have to be willing to make mistakes in terms of people who may not necessarily be deserving getting loans or aid or whatever it might be. So it's like kind of the, the downside uh, the, the downside of the positive thing of getting some money out there quickly is that you can't do it in a very targeted way. Yeah, clearly it hasn't been targeted. It seems like a lot of people are getting it that on paper are probably doing fine and some people aren't getting enough, but that's another day. It's another type of radio show. Uh, I noticed that this caught my eye. For the first time in eight months, the economy saw a dip in job growth with 140,000 jobs lost in December. All of these jobs, according to an analysis from the National Women's Law Center, I don't know much about them, belong to women, emphasizing the disastrous impact on the coronavirus, uh, coronavirus pandemic is continuing to have on women in the workforce. In December, women lost a total of 156,000 jobs while men gained 16,000 jobs. Is that just a weird anomaly or... What's going on here? Well, I think so, but it's probably all, all, also associated with uh, service industries and uh, places where there may be a, a higher proportion of women working. Now, again, the numbers uh, say what they say, but it doesn't mean that uh, uh, no man lost his job or, or, uh, right. or every every person laid off was a woman. It just means the, the net is, is such that uh, there's more growth in the men's sector than as opposed to the women's, but there could be a variety of things probably in terms of uh, maybe uh, more traditional jobs, manufacturing and, and uh, building coming back and some of the service things being uh, right. truncated because of the reemergence of the virus. I think you're right because in the, the last sentence says of the net 9.8 million jobs lost since February, women have accounted for 55% of them. So there it becomes a little more normalized, which right. makes a little more sense. Uh, and again, uh, the, uh, there's also the long-term thing that uh, even though women's pay is somewhat lower than men's, uh, women have doing, been doing much better, especially uh, lower income and minority women compared to men uh, because of uh, maybe better higher education levels and different uh, kinds of work they engage in. So this may be not necessarily a, a, a long-term negative kind of thing. I read an interesting article in CNBC, and it says, the amount of currency in circulation soared last year to a rate unseen since World War II, providing what historically has been a good sign for the economy. Total currency in circulation soared to $2.07 trillion by the end of the year, according to Federal Reserve data. That marked an 11.6 gain percent from the year earlier, biggest one-year percentage increase since 1945. As the nation was coming out of the war... Uh, of course, it does go on to say, and you've mentioned this, the major reason was the $2.2 trillion stimulus bill. And, in, of course, Fred, in, in bad times, people demand to hold more cash. I suppose that's part of it, and it's, and it's sensible. Says the uh, central right. bank's yeah, balance. Go ahead. Yeah. But typically, uh, <clears throat> economists don't 
think about a lot about currency anymore. They talk about the, the money supply. So this, this goes back to several decades ago when people worried about that. So I'm not sure exactly uh, if there's any, any major impact aside from the reflecting what you talked about that uh, in times of uh, not just uh, downturns, but maybe even uh, more severe emergencies having having uh, not just cash, but having currency has some, some advantages. And again, there's been stories also about the uh, inability of uh, of uh, retailers to get enough uh, coins and currency to make change and so on because of the, uh, the, I guess, the use of more more cash now as opposed to the past. Yeah. It does go on, finally, to say that using M1, a country's basic money supply, as the yardstick, those years saw respective circulation growth of 9.6, 10.2, and 9.8. That's both in 2002, 2009, kind of comparing to where we've seen levels like this. It says, while it may be a quirky indicator, it has this in a course it has a solid history of marking economic turning points the guy wrote colas c-o-l-a-s um of course a few instances don't make a trend or anything that's reliable or something you can count on um i think we have a call if i'm not mistaken we have let's see if i can remember how to do this kathleen i think it's kathleen oh or maybe it's cynthia cynthia are you there oh i think i might have lost her or drop the call if i drop the call i apologize i'm a little rusty it's been three weeks since we've done a show ryan and uh hopefully i didn't hang up on cynthia well ryan uh one of the things i want to talk about uh and discuss is (laughs) and son paul sent this to me every year fidelity publishes a study on new year's resolutions as well as other financial issues and they really look at the millennials and gen z and all these things give me a headache make my brain explode all i know is i'm a baby boomer and they separate them and once again the top three resolutions since we're turning the year uh save more money was number one i guess that makes sense i guess intuitive pay down debt well that's number two and that's kind of related and spend less money was number three um the top three resolutions 44 percent of the folks said save more money 43 said pay down debt and 30 percent said spend less money um one out of six people responded that uh, recover losses from COVID-19 was among their top resolutions. Understandable. Yeah, yeah certainly. I think these, these top three resolutions are prob- probably going to be there each and every single year. Maybe one transposes and goes up or down. Uh, but they're all interrelated, as you say. And, I mean, if you're, if you're paying down debt, you know, in the end you're, you're saving more. You're not letting it accrue. You're not letting uh, bigger interest payments build up and, and eroding the amount of uh, usable dollars that you have for yourself. So I think no one would probably be surprised by this. At least it's a, a positive thing everyone's looking at. So saving more, I mean, there seems to be only so many moves on the checkerboard there. I mean, what are some of your ideas um, to get some of those maybe to where they actually work and they stick? Yeah, I, it, it takes a real hard look, I think, at your your spending you have to kind of know where you're spending in order to know where you can cut back or potentially save. So, How do people do that then? I mean, we all talk about that, but are yeah. there apps that are kind of lend themselves to that? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, aside from an app, you could just get your credit card statement every month and look at it line by line by line and see, you know, what are the expenses? And then beyond just using your own uh, statement, debit card, credit card, whatever it might be, 
Uh, there are free services like Mint.com or other apps that you can download and use. Most of them those are free. What, do they aggregate then? Like you can put your credit card in there and you put your bank account. And so you can categorize and spend, you know, how you're spending your money and take an honest look of where it's going. Exactly. So it, it gives you like a, a snapshot or a picture of where the dollars are flowing to. And, you know, some people it might be kind of a, a surprise to see how much money is actually being spent when it's when it's actually put in front of you like that and, and aggregated rather than maybe just looking at line item by line item on your statement. What about uh, automating it? Does that seem to be, it's always struck me, and I always, and I've mentioned this on the radio show from time to time, you know, year to year or so. I just remember Ed Charlo always talked, who was one of the heads of Busey Bank, uh, somebody who's, you know, uh, you know, uh, I think is uh, someone to be admired. Um, always said, you know, pay yourself first. Mm-hmm. Um, how might people even go about that? It seems to me this day and age, it's pretty easy to set up with almost any financial institution an automatic deduction from checking to savings or into an investment account. I know I also use Betterment just kind of as a side account, my wife and I. And, you know, we were able to automate that X dollars a month at the very beginning of the month go in that. It would strike me that automation might be the first step. Oh, certainly. I, it's it's so much easier to save when you don't have to um, see those dollars flowing into your checking account, for example, and then have to try to carve out some of that after the month is over and say, all right, now this is what's left over, and I'm putting that into an investment account, for example. By contrast, if that money is taken out of your paycheck on the front end and immediately diverted to whatever it may be, a savings account, a an investment account, but it's done on the front end, you get used to the the net dollars flowing into that checking account that are actually available for spending. Uh, so you don't let lifestyle creep kind of take over and dictate how much saving you're doing each month. It's it's set in advance. And, you know, in an extreme emergency, of course, you break glass uh, and you can always adjust those types of automatic, automatic saving. But the goal is really just setting up um, behavior and, and letting that behavior essentially take over and especially when you do this early, when you're doing it early and you're you're accustomed to it, you don't get accustomed to all spending every dollar that comes in. And for some people, you don't always have that choice. So I'm not trying to to assume everyone is in the same position. But if you even start at a small level, it just sets good behaviors in place. Yeah, even if it's one percent of your salary uh, the first year, um, you know. In other words, maybe you're just out of college or you're just going into the workforce, whether you went to college or not. You get your first official forty-hour-a-week job. Maybe the pay is not particularly high, or, or maybe it's decent. But the point is, suppose they offered you thirty thousand dollars a year, and you know maybe treat it like, well, the offer is really twenty nine thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, and so I'm going to put a thousand dollars away, uh, a little bit each month, you know, uh, eighty bucks or so a month uh, away, and then each year we typically, because of inflation and productivity. Um, people tend to get a raise periodically. Um, what do you think of the idea of suppose you get a 3% raise, you have a, your, you have your $30,000 a year job. Let's say it's 2% and you get uh, a 2%, so now it's 30600 Uh Maybe you take half of that, treat it like you got a 1% raise, mm-hmm. and that now you increase your savings that second year, or maybe it's by your third to 2%. Well, yep. you've, you've essentially doubled your, you've increased your savings rate by, by a factor of two. Yep. And I think people don't think about that. What about 401ks? Is, what, what are, what are the, 
it seems like that's an autopilot. It's kind of like genius on autopilot. And usually, usually there's provision where a company will match it for most companies, not mm-hmm. all. Um, do you ever see mistakes where people don't take advantage of completely that complete match? Yeah, I think I think for a lot of folks, 401ks are just the, the default factor. Um, and some folks don't maybe contribute enough to get the full company match provided one's given. And that, that would be probably be like the mistake um, that I see most often is just making sure that if you're going to get a, a 2 or 3% match, whatever it might be, that you get that full match um, so that way you're maximizing the dollars you contribute with the match a- alongside with the company. Um, it's free money, essentially, that the, gov- the company is giving you. And, you know, we do see from time to time people that, you know, they might be able to put 5% of their salary away and get that complete match dollar for dollar, and they're doing three. Uh, I'm going to go to Rick online too i think i hit the right button this time rick how are you today yeah you did <laughs> Thank okay you. say well with all this uh money that the government keeps printing 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 and printing uh do you think that that's going to drive up inflation fred what do you think this is so easy of a question i'm well, gonna let fred answer dr fred gertz right well it's the uh typical on one hand or the other hand uh, I think in the short run, the answer is no, because we have virtually no uh, inflationary momentum and all kinds of uh, problems. In the long run, the answer is is yes, but the real question is, when does the short run become the long run? And really, no one knows exactly. So again, we can't do this forever, and it's going to have an impact, but whether it's going to, and it's not going to uh, create a crisis in the next year or two or three or even five, but eventually we have to address the problem and start uh, moving in the opposite direction. But I've been saying this, and economists have been saying this for a long time, There's always, we need to do something, but now is not the time, but maybe a little bit later is. And that's been the, the kind of problem of, of putting things off to the, the future. And we have had some opportunities. We had some good times during the uh, during the 90s where we did actually have some fiscal discipline, uh, less so the last 10 years or so, even th- during this recovery. Uh, we've had, uh, even even before the virus, we had uh, policies that were more like recessionary policies, uh, huge amounts of spending, uh, large deficit, things of that sort. So, again, the caller is, the question is, I think, direct, is directed in a important way that we do have to do something about it. But the question is, when and do we have the discipline to do that? Rick, what's okay, your take? Well, if, we're, if, we're, well, if it's the... If we're like the state of Illinois, they keep kicking the damn can down the road. And if the federal government does the same, there's no one left to bail out the federal government. So, okay, well, so much for that. It's either now or later. So I guess for right now, it's going to be later. Now, my second question is, uh, with all the advertisement that you're... Go ahead, Rick. I wanted to comment on that just a second, the state of Illinois actually has, surprisingly, more constraints than the, the government. The state of Illinois has to actually uh, borrow money in the capital market service kind of a, a way of reining in the state of Illinois, although it hasn't uh, happened effectively yet. Unfortunately, the, uh, or maybe fortunately, the federal government has fewer uh, controls because they have uh, the monetary estimate in addition to everything else. So I think the, the ability of the the state of Illinois is eventually going to have to come to a reckoning, whether they like it or not, because of the way the world works in capital markets. That reckoning is not going to come as quickly with the federal government. And, okay. Go ahead, Rick. Well, okay. Um, 
Now, the next thing is uh, on Facebook and social media, there's uh, all, a lot of doom and gloom out there and people saying that uh, they're trying to sell you things. And one thing that's kind of piqued my interest, but it's risky, is the Dickens. Uh, what's the pros and cons of Bitcoin purchase? Well, by the way, even before Facebook existed, <laughs> doom and gloom was everywhere. <laughs> well, yeah. I've been dealing with doom and gloom <clears throat> since 1984 when I first entered the business. And I know you know that, Rick. Uh, it's always there. And it's typically, and I, and I congratulate you for getting, for actually seeing through it, saying everybody's got something to sell. And if you, sometimes you have to get people to buy in on the premise that the, the dollar's going to collapse, the stock market's going to collapse. Therefore, if that happens, the only thing left is gold. It used to be gold, now it's becoming more and more Bitcoin. And of course, when Bitcoin goes from seventeen or 18000 to 40000 in a in a less than a month, it, it, it further attracts people to it. My feeling on it, and I have, I, I really don't follow it other than occasionally I see that it's up a trillion dollars or down a trillion dollars in any given day in value, is just like gold and many other types of things that you can purchase, it's, it's based on pure speculation. In other words, it doesn't produce anything. It doesn't produce earnings. It doesn't produce dividends. Uh, gold's the same way. And therefore, it becomes a speculative bet. And that bet is, if I buy it today, somebody down the road will be willing to pay me more uh, for it than it than what I paid for it. And that may or may not happen. It's really, I mean, if somebody wanted to take a so it's small... Risky, it's risky business. <laughs> well, it's speculation. Uh, and it doesn't yeah. mean somebody shouldn't even do it. If you know, if you recognize you're speculating and you're not speculating with the amount of money that will hurt you if it, if it declines sharply, uh, you know, go for it. Uh, but let's not confuse that with investing, and I know you're not, but I urge people yeah. not to not to conflate that with any part of an investment program because it's speculation, and I, very few people would want a retirement plan based on speculation. Uh, but I get it. You know, it seems to have replaced all those guys on TV telling us the world's coming to an end, so therefore buy gold uh, to fill in the blank. Now is is Bitcoin and and. I'm not bullish on it. I'm not bearish on it. I'm not saying it's a speculative craze, though it won't shock me that like anything that goes up logarithmically, usually for a lot of people, doesn't end well. Uh, so well, it, it's be my, my luck is that I buy it at the right price, but then I also sell it at the wrong price. <laughs> well, I mean, I think most people. But that's speculation. <laughs> well, and you know what? I think there's this part of human nature, and we, and I think everybody that walks through my door at any given time in life feels like they could write that book or be the author of the book. How come investments work until I buy them? Uh, yeah. And, and, and that's and that's so much different than, for instance, if you went out and bought an S and P 500 index fund. I'm not suggesting people do that, but the, I'm highlighting the difference. Well, you have. 500, you have partial ownership in 500 of the greatest companies in the world with some of the greatest management in the world that actually produce goods and services that people want to buy. Uh, obviously, in that 500, some are going to be big winners and some aren't going to be big winners and some are going to be losers. But in the aggregate, over time, they produce uh, increased earnings historically. And those increased earnings then become increased dividends uh, for many of these companies. And so that becomes something where you can kind of purchase it and be in it for a lifetime and let the compounding of, of wealth just do what it's always done magically uh, and, and not pay much attention to it. 
that's that's the opposite of what gold or something as speculative as Bitcoin is. Um, so I don't know what to make of it. I certainly can't make it. I can't form it as part of any investment policy statement. That's for sure. Okay. Paul, well, one, other, yeah. uh, Paul one, one minor comment. Okay. Uh, if, if you do want to take a flyer uh, and you realize all the, all the issues involved, you also have to worry about the cost. So most of the gold people on TV uh, are going to charge you so much. You start out 10 or 20% underwater from the very beginning. So if you do want to invest in gold, you should look around for the best opportunity to do that. And I, I assume the same thing is true with, with Bitcoin. And probably the people advertise are not necessarily the ones for giving the best deal on these things. Right. If you want to buy gold, for example, you could just buy it as a proxy in the, in, in the, in the exchange traded fund, GLD, uh, it's kind of like gold, but without the O. Uh, and that's a very yeah. inexpensive way to do it. Bitcoin, I'm not familiar enough with Bitcoin exactly how you go out and buy it. So, again, it just never has intrigued me enough. But, yeah. but Rick, okay, I, th- I think well, you are. Thank you for your time and information. You're welcome. Thanks, Rick. And we're going to go to Cliff. My eyes are hurting me today. Cliff on line three. Cliff, how are you? Yes, good morning. Very well, thank you. Thanks, good. Thanks for calling. Sure. I, have a, I don't know if it's more of a comment or a question regarding savings account. Um you know, we talk about, oh, put money in savings, you got to have a rainy day fund, whatever yes. you might call it. But I think it's important for people to have a plan. What is that savings account for? And I would appreciate your opinion. Is this for unexpected things, uh, you know, a major car breakdown, or is it kind of like for, oh, now the, the car insurance is due or the homeowner's right. insurance is due? In which case, it just becomes sort of an extension of the checking account, which is not really i think what we have in mind i think you're right i think i mean i'm glad you brought that up actually because we do talk about it kind of in a ubiquitous way you know it's like it has one meaning uh but you hit a key word um and i ryan i don't know if you caught it but to me it was plan um essentially the only people that make it out alive are people that have a plan because unexpected and unimaginable things are going to happen and the damage is done Really because there are things that hit us out of the blue and we're not prepared for them and we're not prepared for them because we didn't have a plan to deal with them. Not the specific trigger, but the fact that bad events are going to happen. Now let's go back to Cliff's excuse me, question. There's kind of different levels of savings and everything circles back, I suppose, to what is the purpose of the money. To me, and you can share your thoughts, Ryan, there's kind of like two layers. You know, we have a savings for, like Cliff said, maybe uh, just the normal ins and outs and, and maybe a rough patch for a month or an unexpected bill. Uh, that's probably a buffer, maybe an increase in our checking account or just a savings account dedicated to kind of the normal things that show up, but we just can't really get an even, you know, kind of an even flow on it. I think a lot of, when I think of, of, of a savings and reserves, I think of that, I think there needs to be a bucket of money that is in case of emergency break glass. And I don't know why I've always felt like this number. I've always lectured my kids and anybody who would bother listening to me. I don't think any young person, for example, or maybe any person at any age can make a good business decision until they have ten or $15,000 sitting in an account that's not earning much of anything that's there just for emergencies. And it also increases your options in life. Or maybe the job you're after your ideal job pays a little less less than the one you you know another alternative but that's the dream job of your life maybe it allows you to take that job for example and and smooth out the first year or two um 
you know, when you talk to clients, Ryan, when you're isolating it, what do you think the perception is on the client, the, the purpose of that money? And, and, and like Cliff said, it's, you got to have a plan. Like, what is this? Why do we even have this account? Yeah, Cliff, you hit it right on. It, it is a, a purposeful plan of what that money's for and the timing of that money. Anytime that you have bills due um, this month, next month, next five, six months, uh, it's not uh, there's no reason to have that invested. You know that money is already spoken for. It's accounted for. Uh, some people I talk to actually create unique savings accounts at their bank, and they have certain accounts where that money goes into monthly expenses, any bills that are due. They have a separate account that's kind of like their emergency fund account where that's not just the monthly bills. That's what would happen if uh, I lose my job and I'm out of the workforce and I need to support all those fixed costs that otherwise don't go away because of a loss of a job, like a, potentially a rent or um, maybe a car bill or any of the utilities, assuming you're, you're staying in your residence. Uh, so there's different reasons. It really just comes down to personal appeal, what, what works well with the way you're financially wired. Uh, we recommend generally, depending on each person's uh, unique characteristics of being a single or a double uh, household owner, or having more or less kids or no kids at all, anywhere between three to six months of all that uh, non-discretionary income or non-discretionary expenses, rather, things that you can't get rid of, saved in a savings account, not to be touched for monthly needs, but there, like Paul said, is an emergency break glass and you know, a real event where you need access to money. You're not having to dip into your 401k or IRA uh, to maybe cross that short-term barrier that you have to. Cliff, what do you think? As a, what do you think in general? If some, if you were at a financial advisor hat on, uh, and some, and a, and a friend of yours said, "Cliff, how much money do you think I should have for emergency reserves?" What would be your number? Well, it would be hard to come up with a number without first defining the term emergency or unexpected expense. It's such a vague term. I I tried to impress upon my kids as they were growing up. Hey, there's virtually no such thing as an unexpected expense. I'm telling you right now, the car will break down. You will need a new refrigerator. You will need to put a roof on your house. These things aren't really unexpected, and so we need to define the terminology before we try to put a number on it. Well, I think that is wise thinking, Cliff. I'm impressed, <laughs> and I'm not just saying that. I just think the way you've thought through this uh, is, 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 is it's, it was a very thoughtful way to think about it. I, I think that's the key, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, about what some of the lessons from 2020, and you hit on them. There, it's... It's not that there are, aren't going to be some terrible things or surprises or unexpected events that we couldn't imagine are going to happen. We just maybe don't know what they are, but they are going to happen. I agree with you 100%. And if you don't have a plan to deal with it, that's where people uh, do damage to themselves and sometimes permanent damage. I think Cliff's thinking ahead more than most people do. Um, I want Cliff to stay out of our business. That's what I want. <laughs> I don't want to be competing with yeah. Cliff. I, I, I congratulate you because you can say, well, Maybe every 20 years, I'm building into a savings account for that new roof. Every five to seven years, a new refrigerator. Eventually, what you're doing is you're just putting up a lot of cash with a with a bow around it saying, this is for this particular use and isolating it out in advance. Right. It comes into the uh, uh, system of budgeting, which budgeting right. is such a dirty word for so many people, but uh, it's nothing more than a spending plan. How am I going to spend the money that I have? It's not restraining. I find it more of a more freeing. It, it tells you, here's what I can spend this month on X, Y, and Z, and do so knowing that I'm not setting myself up for failure a month, six months, a year down the road. I couldn't agree more, Cliff. And if people would just follow that advice, but you know, it's interesting. Uh, if I, if 10 new prospective new clients walk in our, uh, and they're about to retire, they walk into my office and I ask each one of them, 
what do you think your current monthly spend is? I'd, I'd, I'd probably have to say out of 100 people, maybe five would be able to give me the answer. Most people can get sort of close, and half of them just really don't know. Not a criticism, just an observation. So I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. And we are going to go to Chuck on line two. Chuck, how are you? Uh, good morning, gentlemen. I know <clears throat> I know there are a heck of a lot more important things going on in the financial world than the question I'm going to ask you. WDWS and a number of TV stations carry commercials about a federal government program, and these people are claiming that they owed the government hundred thousands of dollars and they got away for sixteen hundred bucks or something like that. It's got to be a scam, isn't it? There's no no, no such program to be like that. And why are they? If it is a scam, why are they allowed to broadcast it? Well, I'll take them separately. Um, my thoughts are, look, we know that for a fact there are mechanisms to go to the IRS and try to negotiate down and get some tax forgiveness. Now, whether these firms are legit, I don't know. I got to admit, I'm suspicious. I would go into it very suspiciously. Uh, they may very well have negotiated down and gotten some tax forgiveness for their clients. But the, the, the question I would want to know going into it, and I apologize, I've just never looked into it because I've never had to. Uh, and by the way, it is an important question uh, because I think it, it could potentially impact a lot of people. So I think your question is an important financial issue. And there's a couple of thoughts I have. Is one is it's buyer beware. I think you want to you want to read all the fine print or have somebody read all the fine print to see what this you know it's costing you something and i think that's something i'm sure i'm sure they're going to make up the difference in what they're going to what you're going to have to pay them well i think they're certainly going to eat into it that's for sure so i would be reluctant uh just at first blush to just randomly call one of those one or two or three people the other question is why do radio stations or tv stations um you know i, I see so many things on cable tv where if I said the same things, I would probably go to jail because I'm a registered investment advisor. But because they're not registered investment advisors and they're just newsletter people that have CDs and things to sell, they can say outrageous things. You probably see these ones where you get three or four experts, supposed experts, and silver's going, if it goes back to where it was, it's going to go up 100%. Uh -huh. Well, that means it right. went down 50% first or maybe even 100%. Um, so it really comes down to what's regulated and what's not regulated. I hear a lot of things that I think on, on TV mainly and on radio that I think should be against the law and certainly are geared towards damaging people and not helping them. I would say well, that. Well, I, I just been curious about it, and uh, I thought this uh, might be a good time. I don't ever have a chance to call very often, but I thought this might be a good time to call in. And I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the answers. Okay. Thanks, Chuck. Paul, Go ahead. I can make a comment. I've read, it, I've read something about this, and very often these places will you know, take your money and send out a big package of material that basically you get online from the IRS and say these are the options. So there are, I'm sure there are some that are, are good, but a lot of them are kind of like the uh, uh, get rid of uh, credit card debt where you pay a lot of money and they give you some information right. and you probably get free a lot of other places. There are also the possibility of just going to a registered uh, someone who's a, a deals with the Internal Revenue Service and ask them who you should contact, or if they could do the contact and carry out the negotiations, because it is clearly very, uh, very possible to get 
certain kinds of relief, but I think it has to be targeted and have someone who really knows about your situation and also knows about the uh, the workings of the Internal Revenue Service. All right, and I think that means you go to a CPA or you go to an enrolled agent. Either one can deal with the IRS uh, and may have to spend an hour of their time, but they certainly set you on the right path. If they can't do it themselves, they should be able to lead you to somebody uh, who who can help. But go into it, you know, I go into it as a skeptic. Uh, there's so many of them that just, you know, burn me. My wife gets tired of me hearing, like, if I said that, I'd go to jail. But they allowed to say it. It's unregulated. A lot of these things are just unregulated. Well, Ryan, I wrote our most recent newsletter that will probably go out this week. And, and I, really it was about my last 37 years and how over those 37 years there's been a few occasions where the economy and the markets have really served as a really good tutorial on the principles of long-term investing and how to be a successful investor and goal-focused investing. But as I wrote in my newsletter, none of them compare uh, to 2020, which I would consider the pinnacle or masterclass in these principles. And it was a it was a strange year. The market started out well. It went to an all-time high in February. Then we had the fastest bear market in history, followed by the fastest, you know, uh, increase out of a bear market in history um you know the day that we heard a word that we had never really heard before and we haven't stopped hearing covid19 at first we had all kinds of names coronavirus uh but we all call it different things um but it was a a fast bear market but i think what confounded people is by the end of the year um, what had taken place. And if you bought it, the S&P 500 at the beginning of the year and earned all the dividends and everything, you had an 18% re- year. I would, I would say anybody would classify that as a really good year. So I want to go over some of my key takeaways as I did in my newsletter on the experience of 2020. And Fred, feel free to, to add to these. The first one, and this is kind of what Cliff was talking about, is just recognize that terrible things will happen. Um, but as I wrote, horrible things that come out of the blue do not cause investor problems themselves. The real damage comes from a lack of preparation for the unexpected. It's not having a plan to deal with bad states of time. That's obvious, but, um, and I'll go into this a bit more about risk, uh, you know, it's how, it's how we even think of these things. The second thing I wrote is there's a difference between volatility and risk. This one's always driven me nuts. You know, advisors, financial people talk about standard deviation and volatility. What they're really talking about is fluctuation, by the way, above and below the permanent uptrend. Uh, But most investors have had it drilled into their head that volatility and risk are the same thing. Volatility or fluctuation, again, as I like to call it, is a known unknown. We know that the stock market and stock prices will fluctuate sometimes wildly, but we can make reasonable guesses about its future range so that we shouldn't get allow ourselves to be completely surprised, for example, that a stock market goes down 50%. It does that maybe once a generation. Uh, so we can make reasonable guesses. Ris- risk, on the other hand, I wrote, is an unknown unknown. A lot of people might remember, um, oh, this, my brain just went blank. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, yeah, Rumsfeld, who always talked about, you know, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. Well, clearly, uh, COVID would be an unknown unknown. But if, when I went back to look at what the pundits were saying late 2019, they were filling our ears with all sorts of dangers that we should be aware of. But none were the risk that would turn out to be the one that really did all the damage. 
As certified financial planner Carl Richards once wrote, risk is what's left over when you think you've thought of everything. I think that's a great statement. And, and that kind of gets back to Cliff. You could think you've thought of everything, but you haven't thought of everything. And there's going to be these unknown unknowns. The number three thing I thought was a valuable lesson is at their most extraordinary turning points, the economy can't be forecast and the market cannot be timed. I mean, if that's not a lesson of a lifetime, if that's not the poster child 2020. For instance, if you got out during the panic, um, you know, tried to get out during that horrible decline and you got caught in it, it turned out to be a formula for significant underperformance. And that's most often the case. And that's what we find time after time. Instead, having a long-term plan and sticking to it, acting as opposed to reacting, our investment policy in a nutshell, once again, demonstrated its enduring value. The next one is very similar. It kind of is, I would say, it's the cousin of that one. Never let your politics get mixed up with your investment policy. Fred talked about this earlier about, and, and it wouldn't have been just Fred, it had been me and a lot of other people. But anyone, I wrote, everybody, <coughs> everyone who exited the stock market in anticipation of the November 3rd election got thoroughly and almost immediately skunked. More recently, Senate controls under the Democratic Party, as Fred mentioned. That's kind of a new bit of news, and everybody was in a dithers of what that will do to the stock market. Uh, but since then, really, we hit another all-time high. Yesterday was down a little bit, but the point is, everybody thought the stock market, or many people thought the stock market would decline sharply. Uh, if you made that bet again, you were you were wrong again. The fifth thing I wrote, and there's only six, so don't panic, Ryan. <laughs> Any plan worth its salt has capital preservation rules. It's essential to recognize that most damaging risk, the most damaging risk in the stock market is something we'll never see coming. Therefore, the best thing we can do is create a sensible plan designed to survive a worst-case scenario. This strategy allows investors to keep moving forward. So the whole essence of a financial plan is basically it's a series of rules that center around if this happens then that if this then that if 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 stock market goes up a lot i'm going to do this if it goes down a lot i'm going to do this if it's kind of in middle ground i'm going to do this and the whole key when it comes particularly to people on the front end of retirement most of the time over a three-decade retirement, returns for the stock market are going to be pretty generous. At least historically, that's been the case. There's no facts about the future. But even 1929 through 58, the stock market had a pretty good compounded return of about 8.5%. But the first four years saw the stock market decline 85%. Most people today in their retirement plan, if they even have one, could not survive that. They don't have a plan to survive that, and they need that. So you have to create a sensible plan designed to survive in the short run to get the you know typically the generous lifetime returns the final one i wrote is and i think this is one we talk about a lot number 6 is we can diversify our investments diversification is the only reliable way to survive the unexpected and unthinkable it's one of the best tools available to avoid allowing bad luck to give you extreme outcomes at the worst times we own i just added this we own mainstream equities so Call that the stock market if you want, our portion of the stock market. So we can eat well, but we have some of our portfolios invested in bonds to sleep well. I think that's the key you know, for most people. Yeah, we want to maximize returns, but at the same time, we want to maximize our ability to sleep. And there's a fine line. You have to. That's the art of trying to come up with that right allocation and the right mix. Yep. And we always say we, we want to maximize our returns, but to what end? To, to spend more than we can already spend? Like For some folks, they look at investing and saying, I have to get the absolute most top dollar return I can get. 
but for what for at what cost? Well, a lot more fluctuation, almost certainly. And sometimes for things that they're not, that aren't even going to, it's not even going to do anything for them. They're not going to spend it, even if they have higher returns. And so, is that in a way of saying they're risking what they have and need for what they don't have and don't need? And right. That's a classic mistake. I think that investors make. Yeah, and I, and I think when you realize that, when you understand that, just taking on more more stock exposure doesn't necessarily buy you more of what you need. Then you say, well, why do I play in that? that game. Why do I need to do that? Well, the real answer is probably you don't. You, you can bite off less stock exposure for more of the, the calmer bond holding position because you don't need it. Yeah. And I think that's, again, that's the art. And uh, the, the, again, the key to anybody who's about to retire in retirement, my 37 year takeaway, it's my 38th year in the business, is you need a plan with a set of rules. You need a capital preservation rule. What do we do when the unexpectedly bad things happen? Uh, how do we make our retirement, keep our retirement plan viable? And then we need some form of an enhanced lifestyle rule or prosperity rule that says, look, if things aren't horrible and they're pretty decent or halfway decent, and now our plan's better than we thought it would be, there needs to be some mechanism or a rule that allows you then to take advantage of that and either increase a current goal or maybe add an additional goal or what many of our clients do. They just give some money to their kids. Never happened for me. But <laughs> that's, that's my sad story. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's your your whole purpose is you're you're giving forward a whole new generation of kids what you didn't get. Well, I'm I'm helping other generations. That's for sure. Other families' generations. Fred, do you have any thoughts for a last minute or so? What we might uh, watch out for this year? No, I've, yeah, very my my day it would be interesting to see what happens because maybe all of the uh, all the good things have already been incorporated, and we'll see what happens uh, when they play out. But again. I think the uh, the major downside would be some kind of failure of the uh, of the uh, vaccination process, and uh, that's not likely. But I think that's the kind of the, the big risk. But there's also a, a potential uh, upside uh, possibility as well here. Some people have talked about uh, 2021 being the largest uh, employment gain in history uh, if, if the economy recovers the way we, we hope it will. So I, I think there's not not surprisingly. Right. But, uh, uh, upside potential and downside uh, risk here. I think you hit on a key thing. I think a lot of this, I could, I could, I can't rule out that a lot of the good things that are about to come are fairly well known, and they might be priced in. So it might be maybe a, a year that's really not so great for the stock market. I can't rule that out, or it could even be a year that surprises everybody and it actually ends up down for the year. I, I'm not forecasting that, but I can't rule it out. But on the other hand, it begs the question: How do we make an investment policy out of that? You can't. Uh, so the best thing you can do is have a plan to deal with the unexpected, uh, to heat, you know that has plenty of room and plenty of uh, plenty of padding. Twenty twenty was a wonderful masterclass in probably what how we ought to adjust our thinking. Of maybe we need more padding and more room for the unexpected, and that includes increased and more robust emergency savings account. Well, thanks, Fred, for calling in today. This is Paul Rudy. I'm here with also Ryan Repco, Certified Financial Planner Professional with Rudy Wealth Management. We'll be back in two weeks. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.